Welcome to the Eden Podcast, where we think again about the Bible on women and men, and we start with the correct understanding of what happened in the Garden of Eden back in the beginning. Today, we'll be hearing from Bruce C.E. Fleming, founder of the True 316 Project. He's a former academic dean and professor of practical theology. The foundation of the True 316 Project is based on the research of Dr. Joy Fleming, who wrote the book, Man and Woman in Biblical Unity, Theology from Genesis 2 to 3. Do you know what the 11 Hebrew words mean that God spoke to the woman in the Garden of Eden? Bruce and Joy put that and more in the Book of Eden, Genesis 2 to 3. We invite you to get a copy today and make sure you have a solid foundation for understanding the seven key passages on women and men in the Bible. It turns out when Genesis 3.16 becomes clear, all the other passages become clear too. You can learn more at our website, true316.com. That's tru316.com. And now enjoy today's episode of The Eden Podcast. Well, I have the privilege of meeting with Dr. Bill Rudd right now. Uh, hi, Bill. How are you doing? Uh, hi, I'm doing well, Bruce. Thank you so much. Always great to be with you. <laughs> That's good. We're going to spend a few moments here doing an Eden Bible study, and we're going to look at uh, what is God's true 316 message. Bill is a pastor of many, many years, and uh, we we met because I learned about his most recent book. And so we're talking about this passage in Genesis chapter 3. And when we talk about the true 316 message, we're focusing in on Genesis 316. But to get there, I want to walk us through, and we'll just start with Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, or the first part of the chapter. So reading through the Bible study, this is an easy text. If you'd like a copy of it, we could actually send this to you. Just send me a message to bruce at true316.com, and I'll send you the script of this uh, Bible study. The title again is, What is God's True 316 Message? Sounds good. Okay. Back in the beginning, Satan attacked the woman and the man. He succeeded in getting them to eat the forbidden fruit. Genesis 3, 1 to 6. I, th I think it's very interesting that you uh, quickly note that uh, he attacked both because many have missed the fact that Adam was present. That's right. So she gave it to her husband who was with her. And every time Satan used a pronoun, he used a plural pronoun in Hebrew. So he said, you two this and you two that. Mm. And they're both on their honeymoon. They're not going to be separate, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they were together before this attack at the tree, and they were together after this attack at the tree. And so the logic, of course, is they were together. And, of course, there was no one else to hang out with except God. Yeah, it was the, the selection was rather precise here. <laughs> when God asked the man what he had done, the man failed to point out the role of the serpent tempter who had lied to them and twisted God's word. Instead, the man turned on God and on the woman and blamed them for his rebellion, Genesis 3, 12. That's, that's great. And when you and I talked about that before, uh, it really opened my eyes to something really, it's very clear in the text, unless you're not looking for it. So does he actually confess, you know, well... So we have an attitude check, and I'm now I'm going to pay attention to him and see what his attitude is, because I don't think I like the way he did that in verse 12 here. Right. When God asked the woman, now we have a little chance to compare one with another here. When God asked the woman what she had done, the woman confessed her disobedience and unmasked the tempter. 
She correctly told God that the serpent tempter had deceived her. Verse 13. Mm-hmm. Very interesting contrast, isn't it? A lot of people, when they look at this bill, though, they say, well, uh, he blamed somebody else and she blamed somebody else. Is she blaming here? Well, even if that were the case, she's blaming the right person. <laughs> but no, she's, I think she's identifying the source of the temptation and her deception. So the interesting thing is God's reaction to all this, which we have here. In verse 14, immediately God acts on the woman's words. And based on her judgment of the, of the serpent tempter, God curses the serpent's body right then, bang. Mm. And then in the next verse, in 3.15, God confirms that the woman will be Satan's combatant when he says, and this is not a word we use frequently, enmity, but I will put enmity between you and the woman. In other words, there's a combat going on here between the two of you that's just occurred and is occurring, and I'm confirming it will continue. And then he announces to Satan that the woman's offspring would crush his head. Yes. Isn't it interesting, and I don't know that I paid attention to this before just now, that uh, it's the woman that God characterizes as the one who's going to fight against the devil. Right. Not, not that Adam doesn't have to also, but that's not the identification of this text. Right. And so it gives you the idea that is she, is she fighting against the devil? And so that's why I went back and looked and I thought, well, he didn't betray or reveal or anything the devil, and she did. Mm. So God's saying, okay, well, what the, what's going on now? I'm going to confirm that. Then God turns back to the woman and promises her conception. That's the Hebrew word number four in line one of 316. And then God tells her, well, when he says you're going to have conception, what he's telling her is that you're going to still fulfill the blessing that I gave to both of you on day six, that you should be fruitful and multiply. That's part of it. And then more specifically, He's telling her, well, you're going to have conception. Specifically, she would bear the seed or offspring who would defeat Satan. Mm -hmm. That's real important to recognize. Now, if you use your King James Bible, the old King James that talks about thee and thou, and uh, it says uh, you will have, I I will multiply your uh, one thing, and then I will multiply the second thing. And the second thing is the Hebrew word for. So he says, you're certainly going to have conception. So that's real clear. That's not a distinction or or a separation that most uh, contemporary versions make accessible. No, no, they talk about one thing. They don't talk about one thing and a second thing. So this second thing, it's important to you know see that it's there. So when my wife, Dr. Joy Fleming, did her research, she said, you know, we've got two different things going on here. We don't have one thing. You can't push these words together and come up with one thing. you got to keep it very clear. There's these two things. Now, you know the word protevangelium or however that's sure. pronounced? yes. Mm-hmm. So what's the, what's the protevangelium, Bill? Well, often this, this text is called the, the forerunner for the gospel, the early gospel, because of it indicating that the deliverer will come uh, as the seed of the woman. And he will crush Satan's head. Yes. So that's, now we're, t- we're hearing about Jesus. Now the word offspring or the word conception or the word seed. So in verse 15, the Hebrew word is seed or, or offspring. And in, in verse 16, the Hebrew word is conception. These are singular words that have a, a plural p- potentiality inside of them. So it's a single word. Your seed could be one child. 
but it could be multiple children. And so when you have prophetic language like this, you know, you've got, you've got both packed in here. So she's going to have a son, mm. uh, but is it, is it going to be her immediate son or is it going to be her offspring down through the generations? Well, now from our period in time, we know what that was, right? Yes. I, and I don't want to get us off the trail too much here, but some have noted, of course, that the first, first to declare the resurrection were women. And basically what this text is, is the gospel is given first to the woman. Specifically to her. Yeah, you're right. Mm -hmm. a, yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. And when Mary bore Jesus, there was no man involved. It was a woman. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, so it's technically correct. It's uh, prophetically correct. It's personally correct, relationally correct. But all of our modern translations, except for the King James trans, uh, uh, tradition, they don't show you this word conception as, as one of the two things God talks about. They cover it over. And, and hence, as I'm sure you'll talk about, they almost turn that into the curse, but it's, but it's not. It's not a curse on the woman. Well, certainly conception is not a curse. Mm -hmm. And certainly conception has nothing to do with pain in childbirth because that's at the very end of nine months after the conception gets everything started. Yes. The word could also mean pregnancy, but still, you've got the whole nine months involved there. You don't have the last few minutes or hours. Well, let's go back. God also told her that she would experience difficulty along with the man in doing field work. That would be because God would curse the ground because of the man and both would experience sorrowful toil. Now that's Hebrew word three of line one and 316. So he says, you're going to have it's a bone, which means toil or sorrow or sorrowful toil. Mm -hmm. And you will have her own, which means conception. Hmm. So if we have uh, sorrowful toil or, or it's a bone in 316, we also have it in 317 where God specifically says that to the man, you know, I'm going to curse the ground because of you. And the result will be when you work this soil, you will have this it's a bone, you will have this sorrowful toil. Mm. And then in 529, when the parents of Noah talk about the, the coming kid, this, you know, our child, we're saying, oh, this one hopefully will help us uh, from the sorrowful toil that we have when we work the ground. Hmm. Okay, so here's God's words to her in Genesis 3.16, line 1, according to the King James Version of 16.11. And Hebrew words 3 and 4 are what I want us to pay attention to. So they said it this way, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. Hmm. Now let's take a look at the word sorrow again, or sorrowful toil, or toil. Does that have anything to do with childbirth, Bill? No, not at this point. No, just not, just not at this point. <laughs> See, you're, you're thinking about what's going to come up in line two. One of the things that my wife, Dr. Joy Fleming, said was that in line one, God gives her, God, God acts. He says, okay, I'm going to do these two things. And then in the rest of the verse, he doesn't act anymore. He teaches, he informs, he advises, he tells her about what's coming. So we really have two parts to Genesis 3.16, which is just line one by itself, mm. these four words. And then we have lines two, three, and four. And when we get down to line two, there's going to be something about childbirth there. But the word, the word there is not sorrow. It's not sorrowful toil. It's uh, etsev, which means effort. Mm. Mm. So we're, we're down into some brand new territory. And it's, not, it's really not related to the line one, although people... The King James did not help us at this point, nor do other translations, because they, King James said sorrow in line one, and then it said, I think, it would say sorrow in line two. So 
Let's look closely at the second word then. Sorrow is the first one. The second one, conception. Is that is that talking about the act of childbearing? No. Okay. So what we're we're going to read the Bible clearly. Let the Bible be clear. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. Two things. Sorrow. Sorrow links down to the curse on the ground with the man, mm-hmm. and conception links back to the birth of the of the seed or the offspring who will crush Satan's head. Mm. All right, so let's just recapitulation here. Sorrow or toil is what both the man and woman would experience doing fieldwork of the cursed ground. This is not childbirth. And conception or pregnancy happens in the nine months before childbirth. Mm -hmm. Warning, morning, modern language versions of the Bible have changed how the Bible words, the Hebrew words, were correctly translated into English back in 1611. They have introduced an incorrect, unjustified, and very misleading new idea. They have replaced the two words with just one idea, pain in childbirth or pain in childbearing. Mm, very good. Now they say that, well, in, in the Hebrew, you can take one word and another word, and you can take it as what they call a hendiatus, and you can make one thing out of it, right? Which certainly happens at times in Scripture. Right. There's lots of places it does. But there's markers. There's ways that sh- there's things in the text that show you grammatically this is going to be a hendiatus. Now, when we went to uh, the East Coast and we visited a couple of very famous uh, scholars out there, uh, my wife interviewed one and she, she just, they just spent a half hour talking about, is this a hendiatus? And, and uh, the, the scholar said, well, this doesn't look like a hendiatus in Hebrew. And he spent the rest of the time explaining how it did not look like a hendiatus in Hebrew and how it made how it made sense not to take it as a hendiatus. And then and then at the end, <laughs> it's not funny, but it's it strikes me as, I don't know, significant. So I laugh. But he said at the very end, but we know it's a hendiatus. <laughs> Is that your bias driving your interpretation? <laughs> He seemed to be really sincere and he was a nice, you know, nice to talk to him. But when we walked out of there, we both knew something hmm. that he, he hadn't said. We both knew that it was not a hendiatus. So then the, the task was, all right, if it's not a hendiatus, if it's two separate words that are multiplied, then what, what do they mean? And so we've spent the rest of our time talking about that. If you think it is a hendiatus, then you come up with this brand new thing. You bury the truth that God talks to her about how she relates to the soil. And you bury the truth that the Protevangelium, the first announcement of the gospel, applies to her. Hmm. And then you make it look like there's a whole new bad load of information that God is delivering, and that is you're going to have pain and childbirth. Now, when we were in Africa, everybody knew that that was a curse. The Hebrew word curse is only used twice in this passage. One is, I curse the serpent's body. And one is, I curse the ground. Two curses. But if we ask people, and we surveyed them a lot, a lot of people around the Europe and in Africa and here in, the, in North America, and we said, how many curses? And they said, oh, there's three. Mm, no, there's four. Any idea what the four curses were? Well, obviously, they're going to say the ground. Uh, I mean, I think what would be said would be the ground, the serpent, the man, and the woman. All right. But God didn't curse either the man or the woman. Well, and I have to admit that in our earlier conversations, that was kind of a surprise to me because I've been schooled my whole life in 
four curses and didn't look at the text carefully. Yeah, well, that's the benefit of, of coming back and checking it again. <laughs> yes, but it's hard. It's hard because once we've kind of latched onto an idea, that becomes our mindset, and we look at everything through that lens. And we see that again and again in studying the scriptures, don't we? That the lens we look through often wrongly drives our exegesis. So nature abhors a vacuum. Hmm. And I found that when I went off to seminary, if I heard some teaching about an idea or a subject I never even thought about, didn't even know it existed, and somebody said, here's a new category of thought, and here's what it means, whoom, that, that just filled up that, that part of my, in my thinking. Oh, that's what mm. it means. And once you have a first impression, it's very hard to dislodge a first impression. Yes, very much. So the first impression that we're hearing from, where, where are people hearing this about four curses? I guess I don't know where the spring is that sent that down the stream. But I, I hear it in, in, our, our, in the words of our hymns and songs. I hear, mm. it, I hear it in sermons. I see it in the pages of uh, children's Bibles. Yep. Uh, right? So it's, it's all over the place. It's just not in the Bible. <laughs> right. <laughs> so is that a problem? When we went to Africa, we found that it was a problem. We found that people took it this way and they reasoned this way. If God cursed the woman with pain in childbirth, then she must have deserved it. Otherwise, he wouldn't have cursed her. If she deserved it, she must have been guilty of something or she must have been flawed in some way. And so, so and then they say, well, if, if the Bible teaches that in the Garden of Eden, then in the other passages, especially the New Testament ones that talk about women and men and at the home, in the home or women and men, in ministry and church, they reason that we must limit a woman's destructive nature in the home, and we must mm. restrict a woman's destructive nature from harming the church. Mm. I'll just read a little bit more from our Bible study. When they get 316 wrong, translators and commentators have gone on to misread other passages on woman in the Bible. They act as if Eve was really the temptress, and as if Adam was really the combatant against Satan. Yes. Again, uh, Bruce, I, as you know, I've been a student of the scriptures my entire life. And some of these things that are, are so obvious when you take the glasses, the lens off, the colored lens, you know, I guess I've, I've, I'm sure I've used the word temptress of Eve and certainly bought into that concept. And it simply is not in the scripture. No. Now, the man accused her of, in a sense, of being the temptress. Mm -hmm. uh, and Satan would like to peddle that message yeah. in his combat against her. Huh. So let's think about it. What is the true 316 message? There's more in Genesis 316, and it's worth going into, but right not, not right now. So the true message of Genesis 2 and 3, and especially line 1 of Genesis 316, is that God didn't curse Eve or Adam or limit woman in any way. Yes. Well said. Now, when we, when we were studying, Joy did her doctoral research, and I did mine too at the University of Strasbourg in France. And one of the things they talk about is l'état de la question, <laughs> which was a nice way of saying it. That's the state of the question. So whenever you were going to talk about almost anything in the, in the graduate school there, they said, well, we, first of all, we, not, we have to talk about what is the state of the question? Well, where are we now? And where are we going? So the state of the question for me, 
for the True 316 message is this. We wanted to true up the verse and make sure that people's thoughts about Genesis 3.16 correspond with what the words in Genesis 3.16 say. So recently we launched the Eden podcast, and then we published the Book of Eden, Genesis 2 and 3. The podcast has now surpassed 50,000 downloads from 85 countries. That's wonderful. But let's see what the state of the question is out there. So far, as far as I know, Bible translators... Bible publishers haven't gotten the message. Mm -hmm. I recently interviewed a, a very popular podcaster from Canada, and she said, "Bruce, we need to, we need to, we need help because we're sending out new missionaries and new preachers and new counselors who have been taught the old thoughts about Genesis three sixteen, and they continue to use the flawed and mistranslated version of three sixteen. They continue to restrict women at home and in church." And they already are, and they're going to cause more harm to Christian women and the church as a whole. Thanks for listening to the Eden Podcast. Do you have your own copy of the Book of Eden, Genesis 2-3, to and our other books on the seven key passages on women and men in the Bible? Visit our website at true316.com. Do you want to go deeper? You're invited to enroll in the current study unit of True School. Take a look. Go to true316.com slash school.